Well, so when it comes to safety, are you one of those people that is really safety conscious? Um, if you own a business, that's always a big deal about you know job safety and, and doing safety lectures and all of that. And and uh, we've we've thought a lot about the need to make safety first. And <laughs> not everybody really gets the concept of what it means to honor safety first. I uh, I got looking last week and I found some great examples of this. Here's a here's a few. How about this guy? In the barrels on top of the forklift to change the light bulb. Or here's another one. What could possibly go wrong? Or how about this guy? Okay, that's a stairwell. He's got a stepladder braced on a board leaning against a wall. Yeah, that's going to be fine. And one more. Mm-hmm. It's efficient. Now, I would submit to you that these people have failed to ask themselves two very important questions. The first is, what may come next? And second, am I ready? Two really important questions to ask ourselves in life. What may come next? And am I ready? You know, in a sense, all of us are in high-risk positions, whether we realize it or not. Um, I have no idea what dangers I may encounter just driving home today from church. There could be someone that crosses the center line, and I have no control over it, so I really don't know what that danger might be. I, I don't know whether or not I have maybe an artery that is getting dangerously plugged. And, and could suddenly cause something cataclysmic to happen in my life. If you go down the road that way just a little ways, you will see that there is a tsunami siren down there. And the latest estimate that I saw says that if the big one comes, this building could be 40 feet underwater. So if the siren goes, just follow me. We're going to head right up Brigadoon, okay? Um, and even if you can't avoid all of the hazards, natural and man-made, and you eat right, and you sleep well, and you exercise regularly, there is still the inescapable reality that we are mortal and that our time here is limited. And so I think every one of us then are people who should be asking ourselves the question, what comes next and am I ready? When my day comes, I will tell you what I want to have come next. I want heaven. How many of us don't want heaven? If there's a next, that's what we want. And I can't tell you for sure what lies beyond death's door. I, I have never personally been there. So there is always a certain element of faith when we talk about what comes next. I think there are some good evidences that tell me that there is more beyond this life. I mean, there certainly are those, we talk about near-death experiences, people who claim that they have briefly stepped through that door. And, and someday we may talk more about that, but it is interesting when you hear those stories because there's a lot of consistency. There's a lot of unique detail, and, and some of them are told by very credible people. 
And so I don't think we should be cavalier in brushing them aside. But more important to me is the resurrection of Jesus. That was a key piece of my return from being an agnostic to faith, was the historical evidence that the resurrection really happened. And Jesus himself said that he was going to prepare a place for us to come. Now, maybe some of you are familiar with something called Pascal's Wager. Blaise Pascal, famous scientist, also a believer, uh, he created what he called Pascal's Wager. And, and he, he talked about two possible realities. One reality could be that uh, God does not exist. Okay, that could be one real possibility. Another possible reality is that God does exist. And when we ask those questions, what comes next, am I ready? In a sense, you might say we are placing a bet on which of those things we think is true. Now, if we decide in faith that we believe there is a God, right? That, that is the conclusion I've come to, there is a God. And it's not just a blind leap of faith. There's a lot of reasons that I personally have come to that belief that there is a God. And what if it turns out that reality is that God does not exist, right? I, I placed my faith wager, if you will, that God does, but the reality is that God does not exist. What will be the consequences of that? And Pascal says, well, I'll be happy now anyway. I, I still have lived a good life. I will have tried to love others well. I will have served people. I have tried to be a, a productive part of my community and my family, and, and I'm happy now. And then when I die, I won't even be disappointed. I just, there's nothing there. So now, on the other hand, if I have placed my wager that there is a God and, and the day comes that, that I pass away and I find out that God, in fact, does exist, I was right, well, then I may be happy forever. Now, on the other hand, if I have placed my wager that there is no God, all right, and I will live my life as though there is no God, I am the final arbiter of all that is right in my life, and it turns out that God does not exist, I was right, well, I'm happy now. I, I will live my life as I see fit. If, on the other hand, I have placed my wager there is no God, and it turns out when I die that there actually is a God, well, I may still be happy now, but I may also be miserable forever. And you'll note there is a little asterisk there. Because the asterisk is... But what if I'm wrong? I'm happy now. I've decided there is no God. I can live life the way I want. That's great. But what if I'm wrong? If I'm a really thinking person, there should be this little low level of anxiety that says, you know, if I've got this one wrong, the consequences could be serious. And Pascal says that just from a betting man's point of view, if he was going to lay his bet, make his wager, he put his wager down that there is a God. That, that seems to be the place where you should be directing most of your attention. So the next question is, if, if there is a God, if I, if I look at the facts and I come to the conclusion that, yeah, there is evidence that says there is a God, the question is, am I ready for when I meet him? Will I go to heaven? 
And what do I need to do in the here and now to secure my future in the there and then? Uh, there's an old saying that says, all good dogs go to heaven. And if that is true, then I am certain that my old chocolate lab is in a very happy place right now. I'm not so sure about the chihuahua. <laughs> she whom we call the heart of darkness. Well, I'm not going to get into the hypotheticals about dogs and heaven, but I do want to talk about us. Because if I get to see my dogs again someday, that'll be fun. But the question that most focuses my mind is, will I be in heaven? What comes next, and am I ready? Now, I would like to think that heaven is for everybody. The unsettling thing, though, is that Jesus didn't think so. The one person who claimed that he had come from heaven and that he was going back there to prepare for others didn't think that most were going to make it. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. He said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. We've been working our way through the book of 1 John. It's this letter that one of Jesus' closest friends wrote to a group of believers long ago, and we've been looking at some of the themes that were in that little letter. It appears the motivation for the letter was some false teachers who had come into this little church and they had caused both division and confusion within their fellowship. And so John, wanting to counter those false teachings and encourage those who've been wounded and confused, writes this letter and in various ways he encourages them to walk in the light. He wants them to walk in faith specifically faith in Jesus as the rescuer that God the Father has sent. Last week, we looked at his call for a very practical, practical kind of walk in love. And this morning, we're going to look at one final theme that I see in that letter, and it's one that ties them all together, and that is that he wants them to be able to walk in confidence. He wants them to know that they are ready for what comes next. And he gives three ways that we can test our safety harnesses, if you will. The first is a test of what you believe. That is the doctrine of Christ. The second, the test of how you live, that moral and conscience part of us. And the third is the test of how you love which impacts our social, our relationship aspect of our lives. So let's talk first about the test of what you believe. Here's 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I was reading an article a couple weeks ago 
about the efforts that are being made to fix the flaws of the 1887 Electoral Count Act. Uh, we know the last debate happened, the last election, about how the electoral counts are counted. And, and in the process, they talked about the fact, everybody on both sides of the aisle said that original act from 1887 was obviously written by a whole committee full of lawyers because it is really hard to understand. One example is one sentence in that act is 275 words long, contains 21 commas and two semicolons. That's what happens when a committee of lawyers writes a sentence. Now, John is no lawyer. When it comes to the question of how can I be sure that I'm ready for what comes next, he is crystal clear. He says, God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And he's clear about why he's making it clear. He says, I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. He doesn't say, I'm writing that you may have an increased hope that you might have eternal life. He doesn't say, I'm writing that you may have assurance of increased odds of heaven. While John might appreciate Pascal's wager, he had seen the risen Christ. And having seen the risen Christ, he had moved way beyond just trying to improve his odds. He said, I know the guy that has gone to prepare a place for us, and I want you to know that if you have him, you can know where you're going to go. The key thing John says is having the Son of God. So what does that mean? I mean, what does it mean to have the Son of God? Well, fortunately, John repeats himself with slightly different words, which helps. He says, you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Okay, so to have is to believe. In other words, I have mentally grabbed hold of this conviction that Jesus Christ is the unique Son of God. I've, I've made that truth my own. Now, that's not the same thing as making up your own truth, okay? Making up your own truth says, I just choose to declare something to be true because I feel like making it true, whether it's really true or not. John would say, no, who Jesus is really is true. But, but you still have to lay hold of it and say, this is where I am going to stake my claim. This truth that's outside of me is a truth that I'm going to lay hold of. Whether or not I can grasp the mystery of the triune God, I nevertheless come to the point where I accept that Jesus is uniquely the one that God has sent to rescue me. And I believe it enough that I've said to Jesus, please do that. Please rescue me. And I've looked ahead. I've thought about that question of what comes next. And I've looked at my own failures, my own unworthiness of heaven. And I've looked to Jesus and I've said, please help me. If I don't have you, I don't have anything. And that's the starting point. By faith, I have grabbed hold of Jesus, or better, I've recognized that his hand is extended and I finally have opened my hand to him. 
You may know the story. Someone asked C.S. Lewis, who had been an atheist until later in life, and then came to faith, and they said, so what was it like when you found God? And he said, that's a little bit like asking the mouse how he found, felt when he found the cat. God was already there. God was already looking for him. It was finally Lewis who acknowledged that God really did desire him. Easy words to say, I believe. I mean, if you catch me in an emotional moment with the right music playing, I might say I believe almost anything. Years ago, I saw a cartoon back when the Christian musician Keith Green was really popular. So this dates me, right? Um, but it showed this shaggy 70s guy who was talking to his buddy. And he says to his buddy really excitedly, he says, I accepted Keith Green at a Jesus concert. <laughs> so how do I know if my belief is real? especially on the days when life is hard and my emotions are low and I can doubt. And so John gives a second test. And the second test is how you live. You remember that John described God as one who is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, if I really have grabbed hold of Jesus, if I really do want to follow him, then I'm going to start calibrating the compass of my life to his compass. There are going to be choices and habits that I used to give nothing more than a shrug to that are going to begin to bother my conscience. I'm going to start to think different about my life. I'm going to be concerned not just with what I can get away with, but what is truly right. Here's what John says, 1 John 2, verses 3 through 6. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Verses 28 and 29. Now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, I'm going to bet that some of you have enough theological background that you're a little bit uncomfortable with thinking about how well I live as being one of the proofs of whether or not I really am in God's family. It sounds like maybe I'm saying that one of the ways we get to heaven is by clean living. First off, I'd say, don't shoot me. I'm just the messenger. I'm only telling you what John said, okay? I mean, but wasn't Paul pretty clear when he wrote to the church at Ephesus that good works is not what saves us, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 Paul says, by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not the result of work so that no one can boast. Amen. So let me get this straight. Paul says, you don't get right with God by being good. And John says, being good is how we know we're right with God. So is that a contradiction? Well, let me ask you a question. Do soldiers march 
to get into the army. They don't, do they? Soldiers march because they are part of the army. Soldiers sign up or get drafted in the army, and then they march. But the fact that they're marching is one of the evidences that they are in the army. Just marching around your house does not make you a part of the army. Now, if a guy claims that he is a soldier, that he's part of the army, but he refuses to march, is it a fair question to ask if he's actually joined the army? Look at what Paul wrote right after this verse, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? By grace we're saved, it's not by our works. Next verse. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, doing what's right isn't what qualifies you for Jesus' family any more than marching well gets you into the army. But choosing to follow Jesus... Taking hold of him by faith is what sets us on his path. And it's a path that loves what is right. God has created you with unique gifts. Each one of you. And he's put you in unique places. And Paul says he has unique things that he wants you to do. Jesus saves us by his grace he places his Holy Spirit in us, and as a result, we walk different. And the fact that we are following our leader's marching orders is strong evidence that we are in his army. Or the image I referred to a couple weeks ago of a tandem bike, placing Jesus as choosing to ride in the number two seat with him. And if you really are on the bike, if you're on for the ride, you're going to be pedaling. If you're not pedaling, it's fair to ask, did you really get on for the ride? So what specifically does God want us to do? Well, you know, just being a lover of doing right, of right living, can easily turn into self-righteousness. And churches are littered with self-righteous people who flock there because they like nice, clean spaces. Of course, those people usually have some dirt under their nails. And people who pointed others with dirty fingernails we call hypocrites. And the church has had her image dirtied by far too many of those. So we have to be careful, I think, that the encouragement to living right doesn't turn into sinful pride that we are living better than others. And there's a third test that pushes us beyond that potentially pride-inducing quest for personal rightness. And the third test is how we love. That, that the thing, the command that Jesus called us to live out was that we love God and we love others. Not just that we live cleaner than everybody else. Here's some verses about that third test. 1 John 3.10 by this it is evident who the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 3.14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 
18 and 19. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. That's his third test. Do we love the way Jesus loves? I was one of those kids that I took good care of my toys. My, my mom, used to, when I got older, she said, you know, you were always the kid that you never broke your toys. You took care of them. If your toys got broken, it's because other kids broke your toys. And so if you leave me to myself, I can keep everything very nicely organized and no toys will be broken. But as soon as you let other kids in my room, they mess with my stuff. And, and that's true of living in Christ's body. If, if I could just have my own little isolated life, I could keep it just perfect, just the way I want it. But as soon as you people show up, You mess with stuff. But I mess with your stuff too. Right? It's back and forth. The third test, John says, that really demonstrates a person has chosen to follow Jesus and, and not just protect their toys is how well we love one another. I came across this quote by D.A. Carson from a book he wrote called Love in Hard Places. It's a long quote, but I think it's worth taking a look at. It says, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of that sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they've been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Amen. Do you have a brother or sister that messes with your toys, you disagree with them on some stuff, Jesus would say that one of the evidences that you are his people is that you are putting out the work to love those natural enemies. Think about Jesus' disciples. Among Jesus' disciples, you had Matthew, the tax collector, seen as a sellout to Rome, and you had Simon the zealot, who was the radical fringe rebel group. And Jesus intentionally calls these two totally opposing people and puts them into his little band of brothers and says, all right, guys, love each other. Last week, we talked about the fact that this kind of love will demand that we do real things, maybe even costly things for others. Social media loves to promote good causes. If you remember when Russia first attacked Ukraine, I saw lots of Ukrainian flags posted next to people's pictures on their Facebook profiles, right? You could all put that thing up there and show, yeah, I'm, I'm for Ukraine. Uh, I read some research recently from the University of British Columbia, and it said that according to their study, people who talk in the Facebook world, people who clicked 
like on some heartstring tugging topic like save the puppies or feed the children or take your pastor to lunch, something like that. <laughs> People who click like on that were actually less likely to actually give any money to save the puppies or feed the children or take the pastor to lunch. It's easy to click like. It's costly to actually love. John says one of the evidences that you're ready for heaven is that you've actually adopted and are living by the values of heaven. You're not just clicking like. You're actually doing things to love others. C.S. Lewis said, we might think that God simply wants obedience to a set of rules, whereas he really wants people of a particular sort. He wants our hearts. Let me bring in an image from Paul's writings. John talked about walking in light versus walking in darkness. Paul used a slightly different image. He talked about it in terms of slavery. Here's what he says in Romans 6. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruits you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. John would say that you either walk on the bright side or the dark side. You can't claim light and walk dark. Paul would say you can only serve one master, and everybody serves a master whether they know it or not. Paul says one master is sin, which seems like an odd master because most of the time when, when I sin, when I'm doing stuff I should not have do, I really feel like I'm the one that chose it. I chose it because it made me feel good. It seemed like a shortcut to what I wanted. I mean, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? But Paul would say, no, Vegas won't stay in Vegas. In fact, what people discover over and over is that their dark desires become their all-powerful masters. And you may be free to live your life, but sooner or later you discover that free wasn't really free. So the other option, Paul says, is to follow Christ. And in making that decision, you're no longer a slave to sin because Jesus sets us free. But free doesn't mean free to just do my own thing. Because that would take me right back to Vegas. Now Jesus sets us free to become slaves to God. But that's not a bad kind of slavery because we have a master who honestly has our best in mind. Jesus came to serve us to the utmost before he ever asked us to serve him. So what is the proof that you have become part of God's household, that he has become your master? Well, John would say first, you have his son. You have put your faith in Jesus. That is the first step. And the evidence that you put your faith in his son, that you have become part of God's family, is that you begin wanting to do what pleases him. 
The Holy Spirit begins changing you inside and, and you desire to do what is right. And specifically, you begin desiring to love people. First and foremost, his people. And to love them the way God has loved you. And those aren't the things we do to get in. They are evidence that we're on the team. But it's even better than that. John would have nodded along with Paul's metaphor of house servants, but he would have been quick to add another. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Now, no metaphor captures everything. These are all brushstrokes that paint a bigger picture. One brushstroke is Paul's, that we are slaves of God. John's brushstroke is just as much a part of the picture. We are the deeply loved children of God. So let me wrap this up by going back to the two questions we started with. The first question is, what comes next? And specifically, what comes next for you? I listened to a podcast just yesterday. It was interviewing a young man in his 20s who had determined that he is going to live forever. Now, I'm not talking about in the Christian kind of live forever. I'm talking he's decided that in this life, he is going to live forever, and he is doing everything in his power to ensure that he will not die. He said that he's given up flying. He maintains a very strict diet. He's also given up sex because he might catch an STD. That could kill him. He is going to try to do what no one except Jesus has ever done. He's going to try to beat death. And I would say he hasn't really thought through his plan B. What if he doesn't make it? What if despite his best intentions, his best efforts, somehow the thing that happens to every one of us happens to him? What comes next? It's not a question of whether or not there will be a question. The question is, what will it be for me? What will it be for you? Maybe you're like one of those on-the-edge workers we looked at, that your life ladder is precariously perched on things that could give way at any moment. And all the while, you're reaching for things that always seem to be just out of reach. Or maybe you're living life like one of Pascal's against-the-odd risk-takers. You're wagering that there's nothing next. And yet, you have to live with this unsettling question, what if there is? Maybe you're just trying not to think about it. You're living in denial that, that someday there will be an end for you, and if there's a God, you'll have to face him, and you'd just like to not think about that right now because it's kind of depressing. Well, Jesus himself was clear that heaven does not await everyone. So the question we have to ask then is, am I ready? Jesus said of himself, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And I've known people who have said, you know, that's probably true, but I'm just not ready yet. I've got stuff that I want to do that I'm not sure I can do if I'm actually going to follow Jesus. I'm just, I'm not ready for that yet. You know, if there's an end coming and you don't know when, but you choose not to get ready, 
then like our friends on their precarious ladders, you are simply courting your own disaster. I spent 10 years as a chaplain for the Sheriff's Department. There were lots of nights when my phone would unexpectedly ring at 2 a.m. That's never a good thing when your phone rings at 2 a.m. and you're a chaplain. And most of the time, that unexpected call came because someone had unexpectedly stepped into eternity. There were accidents. There were heart attacks. There were violent fights. And none of those people had started that night anticipating how it was going to end any more than I went to bed expecting that phone call. And I don't say that to be morbid. But I do want you to think honestly. Are you ready? Maybe you're one of those that says, well, that sounds good, Tim, but it's only important if Jesus really is that special. And I'm just not convinced he is. I mean, I come to church because my wife likes me to come to church. I figure it's good for my kids to be in Sunday school. I like the music. It's kind of inspirational. But, but I'm not really sure that when you start talking this really specific God talk, that that really is true, that, that Jesus really is the only way. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to actually learn about Jesus. I'm amazed at the people who brush Jesus off and yet have never honestly considered him. They've never actually read what he said. They've never actually checked out for themselves. Is there any evidence that the resurrection happened? Maybe you're a longtime church attender, but when you think through the three tests that John gives, you have to admit that you've got this head knowledge about Jesus, but there really isn't any evidence in your life or your love that you've joined his army. And if that's you, then maybe today is the day that you need to make a real decision. Not just kind of a passing assent that, yeah, I think, yay God, you know. But no, really. Do I want him to be the Lord of my life? Have I made this mine? Am I willing to follow him? Now, there's some of you, I think, that fret about this stuff in really unhealthy ways. Uh, you've got that hyperactive conscience. You love Jesus, you try to live for him, but you know that you fail, and you really wonder if you're ever going to see his smile when you stand before him. You worry about it. You're fearful. Your sense of unworthiness dogs at you. And I'd say remember that living right and loving right aren't the ways that we earn his love. Okay? We don't march to get in the army. Our obedience, whether it is stellar or flawed, if it is done out of love for him, is the evidence that our faith is real. Jesus once talked about the power of faith, even if it was as small as a mustard seed. And that's pretty small. But here's the thing. That kind of mustard seed faith needs to grow. Right? It can't just stay like a little dead seed. It needs to grow. But if you put your faith in Jesus, let me assure you that he has you. John would remind you that he who has the Son, she who has the Son, has life. You know what's next. 
and you can know without a shadow of doubt that you are ready. To walk with Jesus is to walk with the confidence that he will walk us all the way home. I want to have you just bow your heads for a minute because a message like this demands some personal thought. And I want to invite you to ask yourself in your heart, if you've never really asked yourself the question before, say, yeah, what does come next? And am I ready? And if the answer for you is, I'm not sure that I am, then I would invite you to pray right now. Say, Lord Jesus, starting today, I want to have you. I'm willing to put my faith wager on you. And Lord Jesus, would you please put your Holy Spirit in me and change my heart. Maybe you're one of those that you worry about this a lot. You have put your faith in Jesus. You try to follow him, but you don't do so good sometimes. I just want you to reflect for a moment on how much you are loved by him. He gave his life for you. He didn't love you. He didn't draw you into his family because you were so good. It was in grace that he made you his child. And you're his. You can be confident in that. You know, if you prayed that prayer, where for the first time, and, and, and maybe feel dumb, some of you maybe have been in church a long time, but you've never really made this your own. That's okay. Today is the start. And if you've prayed that prayer, or maybe you've still got questions, you're thinking, but, but you've got questions, and you just need to talk to someone, I'd like to invite you, when the service is over, Pastor Lance, myself, will be back there saying hi to folks. Pastor Britt's around. Grab one of us and say, I'd like to talk. These are two of the most important questions we have to ask as mortal people. What comes next? And am I ready? If you're watching online, I'd invite you. Give us a call, drop us an email, send a text. Let us know that you want to talk. What comes next? And are you ready?